All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Everybody to our 25th episode. It's early September 2021, and many people from Louisiana to New York City are still only just picking up from the pieces left by Hurricane Ida, which cut a deadly swath across the eastern half of the country. Of course, our thoughts and condolences go out to all those affected, the images of damage, and in relation to our specific interests here, timelines for getting life-saving power supplies back online are truly devastating. While we're going to get into other topics in this episode, we don't want to trivialize the catastrophe by attempting to pair it with any other energy market or PJM-specific news. So I'll just say that I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me, as always, is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, I'm sure you've been following the details of the storm. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, obviously the same thing, you know, thoughts and prayers to those who were affected by it. Fortunately, you know, our house was spared any significant damage, and actually it was pretty darn dry compared to a lot of places. So how... You're in downtown Philly, Rory. How, how did you guys make out down there? Yeah, so we're on the eastern side of the city and honestly didn't really have much uh, of an issue here. But if you see any of the pictures, the iconic Vine Street Canal that turned the major cross-city uh, four-lane expressway into uh, uh, an extension of the Susquehanna River was pretty wild. I, I, I happened to walk by there yesterday and I know it's had, you know, for a lot of people, if not like a, an impact on their property or their homes, um, it at least has certainly impacted their their lives for their commutes and, and all that kind of stuff, which is obviously a little uh, trivial in comparison. But um, it certainly has had an impact for some people. Yeah, I saw something on Twitter. Uh, it was a video of somebody doing a backflip off of one yeah. of those bridges I on Vine Street. Too. I did see that. <laughs> um, pretty, it was great form, but man, to think that you could do that on the Vine Street Expressway is pretty, pretty. It speaks to the volume of the event. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I saw that they described it as ill-advised, and I would have to agree. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure that they knew how deep that was before they tried that backflip. And uh, if, if it, if it, <laughs> what hadn't have been that deep, uh, that could have been even more catastrophic. So uh, yeah. Or, or what the water quality was you just yeah, diving into. Yeah, that that's, that's, a good, that's a good point, too. Well, uh, it's, it's obviously tough to find a properly respectful transition from that. But again, the storm was, has just occurred, and uh, it occurred well after we began preparing for this episode. And we planned other topics to discuss. So uh, why, why don't we jump into them? Glenn, would you like to introduce our guest this month? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm real excited about this one. We are joined today by former Congressman Ryan Costello. Uh, Ryan um, rose up through the political ranks in Chester County, Pennsylvania, which for those outside the suburban Philadelphia area, Chester County is one of the the counties surrounding uh, Philadelphia. It tends to be one of the more rural counties as as far as those go, but it's certainly uh, been transitioning a lot over the last uh, 20, 30 years or so, and certainly during the time that Ryan was in office. Uh, Ryan served as a um, uh, served on the board of supervisors in East Vincent Township, rose up to be a county commissioner eventually in Chester County. He then went on to serve in the United States House of Representatives starting in 2014. Uh, the reason we're having him on here today, other than just being a great person to talk to, he served on the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House of Representatives, so he has a terrific energy background. He served several terms in the U.S. House of Representatives until his uh, district was redrawn, actually, in one of the more fascinating chapters in uh, Pennsylvania politics. Uh, his district was redrawn in such a way that made it disadvantageous to him, for sure. Um, and now he is uh, retired from the uh, public life and working as a consultant um, and a lobbyist and uh, uh, helping clients navigate the av- uh, energy space. So we are Really happy to have him join us here today. Uh, Congressman Costello, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Thanks. It's uh, great to be with you. I could probably even say it's fascinating to be with you, although the (laughs) the word fascinating would be a different context than the way you used fascinating for my uh, redistricting stuff. But it's great to be with you, and I look forward to the conversation. Such a versatile word. Uh, <laughs> let's set a foundation for this discussion um, by sort of setting setting our scene, laying the landscape. We've got a trillion dollar infrastructure bill wending its way through Capitol Hill. Ryan, for the benefit of those audience members not steeped 
in the parliamentary processes of our federal system. Can you explain exactly where we are in the process? Yes. So the Senate passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill, more than 60 votes, uh, including uh, Minority Leader McConnell, that was then sent over to the House. The House of Representatives in late August passed the rule for debate on the bill. And there was a, an agreement by Speaker Pelosi in order to get the votes of some moderate House Democrats that she would put the bill on it on the floor for an up or down vote by September 28th. That is not binding. The speaker can, doesn't have to honor her promise to do that, but I expect that she will. And so therefore the posture is that by the end of September, there will be a vote on the um, bipartisan infrastructure bill, which includes roads, bridges, airports, ports, um, uh, uh, telecommunications infrastructure, as well as um, grid infrastructure uh, and some other um, uh, clean energy technologies, largely in the R&D loan facility um, and tax credit space. That's the posture of the bipartisan bill. There's then a second uh, bill that's being talked about, which we can get into a little bit later. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of talk about a clean electricity standard or a clean electricity payment program. Um, that is That would happen in what's referred to as reconciliation. Reconciliation is when uh, you pass what's known as a budget shell, um, and then you have a, a, a bunch of um, the committees write their own legislation and wrap it into a uh, budget spending bill that only requires 50 votes in the Senate, plus one, plus the vice president, uh, in order to pass it. And that enables you to uh, circumvent the um, the filibuster, the ability to filibuster um, a, a spending bill. That would that that may happen, but if it does, it will happen later in the year. And I expect that it will be much more modest um, in its in its spending number. You hear the term three point five trillion. It, I think it will be much less than that. And in the climate or energy space, I think it will be more modest than what some people are speaking about at the moment as well. That's that's the best summation I can give you. Yeah, no, that that was terrific, and we're gonna we're gonna ask you in a minute about what you think its prospects are in the House. But we, before we do that, let's maybe talk a little bit about the meat of what what was passed in the Senate. Uh, you mentioned there was you know a fair amount of provisions in there related to energy. Could you identify the ones that you see as the most significant um, pieces affecting the energy industry coming out of that Senate bill? Sure, um, you know, I think that the 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 authorizing and the funding of a lot of the DOE um, uh, programs that are already in place is, is probably the most substantial. And, and to be honest with you, it is, it is somewhat modest um, in, in terms of its scope. And, and by that, I mean, the Trump administration at times just didn't fund um, some of the programs on the books that were, that were put on the books uh, during the Obama years. Um, so that's one piece of it. I, I think the one area additionally is just in the cybersecurity. There's a, there's a, there's a fair amount that asks uh, DOE and DHS, the Homeland Security, um, to assess the resilience of energy infrastructure. Um, and it, not to shift gears too much, but, um, you know, when you spoke, when we spoke about Hurricane Ida, um, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount that, that goes into resilience that I think, this bill is intended to address. I don't know that it, that it addresses it fully. Um, one final piece, I guess I should say, is in the transmission um, uh, space. Um, they are looking to do more in the way of, of expediting permitting for um, uh, transmission. I, I think it remains to be seen whether legislation is going to effectuate that or whether the pending ANAPER uh, FERC uh, process uh, will do more in the transmission space uh, than Congress will. Yeah, and let's let's maybe follow up a little on transmission because we had we had Commissioner Clements on our last podcast, and I thought Rory asked her a really good question because it's pretty clear that FERC has a pretty aggressive agenda as it relates to transmission. But I mean, Rory pointed out, and you're you're the perfect person to ask this question to as a former local public official. 
about just the controversial nature of transmission projects and you know your thoughts on you know whether whether this significant probably the best way to ask it is how does this you know call for a significant transmission build out move forward as it starts hitting the the, the inevitably local yeah. aspects to getting these things done well, and that's probably, to me, one of the more significant aspects of the bill is, is that's what I think we refer to as backstop authority. Is that correct? Uh, uh, that, yeah, it gives FERC the ability to step in and, and trump those local decisions, right? Correct. Correct. Now, it's a little bit, there are some that would suggest that, um, you know, it remains to be seen how that plays out. But but the short the short explanation is, and you're right, you know, it's very easy, and I was a, a county commissioner at one time, and, but I will confess, it's very easy, and before that I was a township supervisor with, with land use, with residential subdivisions in people's backyards that they didn't like. It's very easy at the local level to say no to something that might otherwise be permitted by existing statute, right? Whether it's a subdivision, whether it's a pipeline, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and and what this bill, what it seeks to do is essentially grab from the, the PUC or whatever the, the uh, permitting agency is and allow FERC to, to step in um, and essentially overrule it uh, and to do it in, in quicker fashion. Um, it, I think it remains to be seen how quickly that can happen, though, but, but that's that's one of the 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 more significant items that's in the the bill. Hey, I want to go a little off script for a second here. Is is that a good thing? Well, I guess it just depends. Uh, you know, if you are spending uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, um, it would be good to get finality. Um, if you're in a region of the country that has a, a need for additional capacity. I would, I think that it would be the flip side is, you know, we're, we are a a system of federalism where states are granted certain rights and states then bestow upon local municipalities, certain rights um, that they don't reserve unto themselves. And, you know, there is an element to this that uh, federalizes uh, that permitting process, or at least allows a, a federal agency to supersede local and state decision-making. So there's two sides of it. I mean, there's the philosophical arguments, there's the legal arguments, then I think there's the more practical arguments over whether or not, um, you know, a a local jurisdiction in approving or denying a permit is doing it on the basis of what is codified um, and one must comply with, or whether they're doing it for more uh, NIMBY not in my backyard, NIMBY-like considerations, which um, they, they have the ability to do that in the short term. And, and I think uh, listeners are all probably too familiar with what happens when any kind of project is denied um, and one has to go through the, um, uh, the litigation process in order to have it overturned. Yeah, and and I would just say from a PJM perspective, you know, sort of like a microcosm, we're, we're looking at a similar situation with a project, uh, the infamous 9A uh, Transource project in in that crosses between Pennsylvania and Maryland. Recently, the uh, Pennsylvania Commission um, denied it after PJM had approved it into its. Um, you know, it's regional RTEP, it's uh, it's regional transmission plan, um, and sort of the reverberations of that, it's, you were mentioning earlier about the importance of certainty, you know, the reverberations of that, since it was approved into the plan years ago, and, you know, now all of these decisions are being made with the assumption that it's going to get built, now it's potentially not going to get built, and we have to unwind all of that, and the uh, the the mess that it's creating uh, and continues to create without the certainty of what's going on there. That, that's certainly um, um, a concern that has to be considered and, and what the impacts of that are. I think so. And, you know, I'll t- I'm going to take off my energy consultant hat and put on my land use lawyer hat from 2014. <laughs> I was a land use lawyer. And, um, you know, energy projects are a heck of a lot more complicated, expensive, and time consuming. But when you have private capital or even a bank 
uh, looking to make a loan on a project that is subject to approvals, um, you know, that, that those dollars um, are, are less likely to be invested, the more uncertain an outcome might be. And when you have a certain set of criteria that you have to satisfy in order to get an approval, only to have that um, be uh, uh, undermined, <laughs> maybe that's showing my bias, undermined by um, local angst unrelated to what the, cr the criteria that you need to satisfy, you know, it, it, it can create a paradigm where um, projects that are lawfully permitted that go through the proper procedures still get denied. And, you know, in, in back to the energy sector, you know, you can't build a project unless you can so, show need, right? So it's not, we're not talking about spec. This isn't a spec housing type mm -hmm. uh, situation. Right. It's, 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 an, it's a situation where there's already a d demonstrable need for it um, that still gets subject to, um, you know, local political pressures. So that probably shows you where my, my <laughs> is on the project. Right. You, you took off your energy consultant hat and put on your land use attorney hat. Now I want you to put on your former congressman hat. Yeah. And and let's talk about because Mariner East came through your district, right? It did. Yes, it did. Yeah. So I'm sure you got an earful on that one as the congressman while all that was going on, right? Well, so that's a so before I was in Congress, I was a county commissioner, and it was a lot of the permitting for that was done. Prior to and during when I was a county commissioner, the construction of a lot of it happened while I was in Congress. Although right now, um, right now it's a mess. Um, so, yes. Now, you, you're touching on another subject, which I think is very interesting. And this is this actually points to, in my mind, this points in favor of having it be placed with FERC. Um, because if you are a member of Congress, the last thing you want to do is get your fingernails dirty on something like this. Right. Yeah. You're happy to punt that stuff to FERC, Which, right? And, and, but, but for whatever reason, when I was, when I was in Congress, the, you know, who got the heat on this were the state reps, hmm. the state reps, got, the state reps got the heat on this because this was a department of conservation and natural resources and department of environmental protection. You know, a lot of this permitting was done at the state level. Right. Um, and so therefore that's where, and, and my predecessor, Jim Gerlach, I, I, this, one of the, one of my most smart decisions in life was, was keeping as much of his staff as I possibly could. So they were well-versed, well-trained. They knew how to manage this issue. And the intellectually honest answer when someone would call the office and, and, and air a grievance about this was to point them in the direction of the permitting agency or the, the local law, the more state lawmakers that had some oversight um, over those agencies, which was at the state level. But on any of these permitting, and frankly, even on energy issues, we see more and more, and, and I think we'll find this out um, not to shift gears too much, but if there's a reconciliation bill, right, in, 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 in the, the, the federal level, more and more you are seeing Congress, and it's not just in the energy space, but it is in the energy space too, push as much of the rulemaking, as much of the enforcement, as much as the decision making to federal agencies. And, and you're seeing less prescriptive legislation, and you're seeing a lot of the really difficult decisions not being made by Congress, but instead being made by FERC, by amongst other agencies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And, 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 and pious, yeah, and pious side effect of that, instead of the, I mean, now, now the Congress, now you won't be able to as effectively duck it as a congressman, right? Because you're the conduit to those federal agencies, just like those state representatives were the conduits to the state agencies. Yeah. And Listen, I got involved in government because that's the thing that most interested me growing up. Um, and I could, if I was going to write a book, I'll never write a book. I'm happy to do a podcast, but I'm never going <laughs> to. If I were to write a book, because um, my life's not terribly exciting, the book that I would write about would be how we elect people to offices. And when difficult decisions come along, they find more and more ways to not make the decisions that they're authorized to make, that they're mm -hmm. charged with making, mm -hmm. while yes. simultaneously wanting to make decisions on things that they have no jurisdiction over. 
And that really, that, that has always bothered me my whole life because I am a sort of a creature of what a, a self-governing form of government is supposed to be. And by that, I mean, that's what I learned our republic is supposed to be. That's what federalism means. That's why we have a state government. That's why we have county government for certain functions. That's why we have township governments for certain functions. Having said all that, there is a role for DOE. There's certainly a role for FERC and the decisions that it makes, because that's where the expertise is. But I find more and more, um, and I think that you could see this, um, you know, in subsequent legislation related to energy where, you know, okay, DOE, go do rulemaking. Okay, FERC, go do rulemaking. And that's really the extent of lawmaking that, that happens. And I don't think that that's, there's, there's no accountability when that happens. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, analogous. It reminds me of the, uh, the concept of like being promoted into failure, you know, when, uh, you know, someone does something well and they're good at their job, they promote them to another job that, uh, that they that they aren't good for you know you promote them out of what they're actually there to do um and so yeah and we were talking a little bit ago about uncertainty right with the permitting process here's another way that that uncertainty creeps about when you when you legislate that way we can go back to when i was in congress with the affordable care act i mean you know trump president trump he he unwound um portions of the affordable care act um, he unwound portions of the clean power plan, um, all because when we did law legislation enabled federal agencies to rule make and decide on their own what to enforce, what not to enforce, how to interpret or not interpret. And so you don't want legislation to be too prescriptive. But in the absence of, of, of sort of some specifically contoured guidance, you end up with federal agencies that can make very ab- abrupt pivots substantively in what they're doing and how they're treating industry and consumers from one presidential administration to the next, which is not good, right? That, that's where you lose a lot of certainty. And the marketplace, the adjustments the marketplace has to make as a result of that don't lead to efficiency. It, it leads to uncertainty, which leads to a lot more inefficiency. Right. Yeah. And we're seeing that a lot right now. And that's, <laughs> that, that's a tangent we could go off. On I, 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 I was just going to say that, uh, that foreshadows some discussion that we're probably weren't planning on having today, but, uh, but we can bring you back for that conversation. That's, well, that's sure. just how sophisticated we've become. So <laughs> well, uh, before we move off the energy bill, Rory, I, I am curious in Ryan's thoughts on the prospect of the infrastructure bill in the, uh, in the house, any, any prediction would, on how that plays out in the house? I would, I would give the buy bipartisan infrastructure bill, a minimum 75% chance of passing by the end of September. Interesting. The only, the only, my, the reason it's not higher is I just wonder if the House progressives hold it hostage um, for a reconciliation bill that will not be ripe for consideration. I don't even think it'll be drafted by then, nor are there enough votes to pass it. Um, but I still tend to think that Pelosi will get it to the finish line and so I give the bipartisan infrastructure bill a minimum 75% chance of, of passing, which, by the way, is low. Most people would say it would have a much higher percentage, but I still think that some mischief could happen last minute. That's the reconciliation bill, I've been much more bearish on that than most others. Um, and so I would say if a reconciliation bill were to pass, it won't be until November or December, and that the energy provisions in it will be much more related to tax credits um, and, and, and you will not see a lot of uh, really substantial changes to the marketplace okay. in terms of, of credits or subsidies that, that aren't already out there. Do, do you see them as irrevocably linked? I mean, are, are they are they going to be going together or is, is there still um, a pathway in which they remain uh, able to be independently you know, separated? So they're going to be decoupled because moderates are not going to vote for anything near the reconciliation bill um, uh, that that progressives want to see. And additionally, Josh Godheimer, who's a friend of mine, I actually like him a great deal and I think he's a very hard worker. Uh, and a very nice guy. 
you know, he got a lot of grief in August, late August, when he was saying that they, they, he wasn't going to vote for the rule. And I think he had 10 or 11 other Democratic House members that also weren't going to vote for the rule. They ultimately did. And there was a lot of journalists sort of forecasting, oh, they're going to vote for it. They're wimps. They're not going to pass it. And I thought, like, I, number one, I don't know if that's the case. But number two, when it did pass, a lot of people had said, oh, well, they didn't get anything for it. And I thought that's not true because they got a, a commitment from Pelosi that they would have a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill by the end of September. And there's no way in heck that the reconciliation bill is going to be ready by then. And so I think that that will have the practical effect of decoupling them. I think some lawmakers, uh, particularly progressives, will say that they're only voting for the bipartisan infrastructure bill because they have a commitment to also have a vote on the reconciliation bill. But they're separate pieces of legislation and they're going to be treated separately. And there's the possibilities that some Republicans vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I don't think they'll get one Republican vote. There won't get one Republican vote for reconciliation. Reconciliation is a highly political process. Um, which, look, I, full disclosure, I voted for reconciliation uh, in the House in 2016 and 2017. So it's, I mean, you know, it, it's a process. It's a, it's a process that basically says we are going to pass as much substantive legislation that's permitted um, by the rules of the Senate. And it's, we know it's going to be Republicans only or Democrats only that vote for it. So long answer to they're going to be separated. Okay. But if, assuming this bill or something reasonable, uh, some reasonable, pro- reasonable proximity of it, um, or uh, 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 yeah, uh, something like it, something resembling it gets passed, what do you see as the most likely impact uh, for the uh, long lasting impact for the energy sector? I would imagine that. Um, so I think that some of the transmission policy that they put into legislation, along with what FERC is doing in rulemaking, is likely to have a more lasting impact than anything else. And the reason why is because the bipartisan infrastructure bill is what it is, right? We know what the spending items are. We know what, the, the, what programs they're funding and we know what agencies are going to carry out the purposes. In the reconciliation bill, however, one thing I failed to mention, but which is very important, reconciliation is only allowed to spend dollars and bind that spending for 10 years. And so anything that happens during reconciliation is only good for 10 years. And in the energy space, it's going to take a little bit of planning and rulemaking in order to even get things ready to go, which means 10 years minus however long that takes means even less time. And I'm I'm highly suspect that you're going to see substantial investment, capital investment decisions based on programs that might sunset during that period of time to say nothing of the fact that to get things approved (laughs) takes a whole heck of a lot of time. Whereas Whereas on the transmission side, you're seeing a little bit of um, uh, specifics along with what FERC would do to carry out some of those specifics. So that's where I see uh, the potential. That's where I see the most lasting impact. Oh, that's an interesting point. And that 10-year rule isn't on the infrastructure bill, right? It's just on the reconciliation piece. Oh, interesting. Okay. Right. I wasn't aware of that. Yep. It sounds like you're... Uh, now, one final point. There's one other thing I should add. The, the, the nuclear... Um, the nuclear subsidies um, is something that could very well, you know, I'm familiar that this happens a lot at the state level. You know, there is attempt to do this at the federal level. That that would be another big, that would be another big um, substantive, that, that would have lasting impact. Yeah, for sure. And there's a lot of money in there, too, for those nuclear subsidies. And and just for our listeners note, it only is in uh, markets that are competitive. So assume PJM is in there. So it, it could particularly have a big impact on PJM. All right. Wow. That was that was a lot to process. There. That was terrific stuff. Um, why don't we uh, go back? You mentioned it earlier about uh, federal clean energy standard. Give us your thoughts on that. Um, how do you see that issue evolving? And, uh, and just what's the latest on that issue? So the clean energy standard has has subsequently been changed, I would argue whittled down um, to what they're now calling the clean energy uh, 
uh, payment program, which in effect will will get will pay um, uh, producers or utilities um, money if they are meeting certain clean energy um, goals. And I was on the phone yesterday. There's not any specifics out yet. Um, it's kind of it's very closely guarded. But I was on the phone with a, an energy and commerce staffer yesterday, who I'll, shall remain nameless, who characterized it as a as a plan that has a lot of carrots, a lot of carrots, not many sticks, and they're still working through the mechanics of who would get paid and how they would get paid and on, on, on what basis they get paid. Um, and if that sounds, if I describe that as very opaque, that's because it's still very opaque. And that's why I give this a very low like, likelihood of success. And I'm probably, I'm probably a little bit more outspoken on that than I should be. I, don't, I probably shouldn't say that at all, but that's just my opinion. Um, and I guess I'm allowed to have an opinion. It's just very difficult to do things that are complicated through reconciliation and there's reconciliation is subject to the rules of the Senate. And there's a rule in the Senate, the bird rule, B Y R D named after Senator bird from West Virginia. And the bird rule um, states that you cannot create a new program through reconciliation. You can't create a new government program, right? So you can't reconciliation is about spending money. It's about revenue, right? So you can put more, put more revenue on the table in a budget, or you can, you can do tax cuts in reconciliation and it doesn't have to balance. It just needs to show that your budget is what it is. And you're going to spend this amount and you're going to take in this amount of revenue and you can apply those spending that the spending to whatever existing programs that are out there, you're allowed to do that. But what you can't do is create a new program. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, creative, uh, minds right now trying to take what is in effect a new program and have it not be a new program in order to have it um, comply with the bird rule. And um, I was in Congress during the Affordable Care Act repeal and replace. And there were multiple conferences where Speaker Ryan would talk about how, well, we wanted to do this, but we can't do this because we it, took it to the Senate parliamentarian and now we have to change. And that's time consuming. And the more complicated you make things, the more difficult it is to get it through reconciliation. And the other thing is you have um, Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema um, who, you know, I don't think that they, they're not bought into um, doing everything imaginable under reconciliation. And I, I think that that creates a really tricky set of circumstances for Democrats to do a clean energy standard or a clean energy payment program um, through a reconcilia reconciliation process that's not designed to create a new program. Uh, so that's the, that's the best way I could describe for you why I'm, I'm still very bearish on it. They may do something. What I think is something will, will end up in, if they pass reconciliation towards the end of the year, something will be in there and they will have to take credit for doing something climate related in the energy space. But I think it's going to be much more modest than what we heard as recent as a month or two ago on how they're going to do a clean energy standard. It'll be much, much more scaled back. Well, and as you said, the details are going to matter. And it sounds like the details are still very much a work in progress. Um, well, they're going to try and push as much many details as possible to DOE in order to get this to comply Ooh. with the bird rule. The problem is you can't you can't give um, rule, you can't give instructions to DOE that would amount to DOE creating a new program. Right. It has to fit within within an existing program. And then you have to fund it. And when you fund it, it can only be funded for up to 10 years. But you have to assume that DOA is going to have to do some rulemaking during that period of time. Um, and they're going to have to develop some sort of baseline for, for, the, for market participants. And so as a consequence, I think it becomes very scaled back. And it's going to take a while in order to ultimately implement it anyway. Um, so those are some of, the, wow. some, of the re some of the complicating variables to anything that they want to do. 
All right, let's see if we can just pivot a little to FERC. Just sort of a general impression of FERC Capitol Hill relationships and how those work out. How did you view FERC and, and yeah. how did the Hill view FERC and how did that interaction work out? So first and foremost, um, you will find that Senate offices are much more dialed into FERC, what's happening there, um, and and key FERC personnel. And there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, um, the Senate appoints uh uh, members to FERC, or excuse right. me, they don't appoint, they, they, they confirm. confirm. They confirm. Um, and you also have, with all due respect to, you know, staffers in the House, you just have more subject matter expertise in each Senate office on every everything under the sun than you do in House offices. In my House office, um, I had four, you know, legislative aides, right? And, and you know, that they had to cover everything under the sun. In a U.S. Senate office, you have you have five, six, seven times that, right? That covers wow. under the sun, and so, and if you're on the committee of jurisdiction, um, you know you have even you have even more um, at your at your disposal. So every single Senate office has energy staffers that are dialed into these issues, whereas in the House, upwards of half of all House members. I mean, you know, they don't really have any need to focus on energy issues. Now, if you're in Texas or if you're in an energy producing state, you're more likely to pay attention. If you're on energy and commerce, you're going to pay attention. If you're on um, natural resources committee, you're going to pay attention to some of that because, you know, there are certain public lands, oil and drilling type considerations that, that come before your committee. Um, but if you don't have a specific reason to be involved in energy issues, there's a decent chance that you might not get involved in any energy issues. And so therefore there's no reason to even pay attention to what FERC is or isn't doing. And the reason FERC is there is so that you don't have to do a lot in the energy space. Right. Um, so that's, that's kind of the state of the onion, you know, house versus Senate vis-a-vis um, FERC. Um, Occasionally, you will you will and you know a good example is Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Um, you will have a FERC um, uh, approval issue or permitting issue um, with a project near or in or or near uh, where you are. By the way, that's the other reason why Senate matters so much more than the House is because any energy project in a state, if you're a senator, you're going to hear about it. In the House, that's not necessarily the case. Um, so it's it's very removed um, from the house, uh, to be to be honest with you. Unless you're on energy and commerce, if you are, um, then if you are on the the energy or the environmental subcommittees, you will probably deal with FERC issues on a more monthly basis because you will have committee hearings that relate to it. You'll have markups that somehow touch upon FERC. Um, if in my case, committee the whole, if I would sit in um, or wave on as the technical term is used to those subcommittee hearings, or if there was a committee of the whole um, from time to time, we would deal with FERC um, issues or, you know, I think once a year we'd have FERC commissioners come in um, and ask questions, or if we were reauthorizing some statute that relates to um, FERC, you know, if, if FERC is then taking that statute and interpreting it and in some way we would, we would have relation back to FERC, but that's about the extent of it. I mean, I'm a firm believer in, you know, an agency is charged with, um, with, with implementing, enforcing and deciding upon certain statutes that you've, you've authorized them to, to, to act upon and they should do so without a lot of interference, uh, but only with oversight from, members of Congress and their staff. And that's kind of how I operated. The other final thing in terms of House versus Senate is House members are up every two years and the turnover in the House, you know, you're losing 15% of all House members every two years. And over a six, so over a six year period, half of Congress has been replaced. And that's actually in wave election years, like 2010, 2014, and 2018, it's a lot more than 15%, right? It's 20, 25%, right? So you have you know, maybe 10% of Congress that's been there longer than 10 years. And, and, that, and so you lose expertise at the member level um, and you have a lot more staff turnover 
um, as a consequence. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, it takes time for any elected official just to get to know the agencies, right? And you probably have more pressing agencies to build relationships with than FERC. In most cases, yes. In most cases, there are exceptions, depending upon your sure your committee assignment, um, as well as where you look. If I were uh, if, if I were in, in in certain states or certain issues were front, if certain industries were in my district. Incidentally, PJM was in my district, so I happen to pay a lot more. I, I probably paid a lot more attention than most. Um, and I am certainly not presenting myself as an expert in anything expertise <laughs> <in the laughs> today. So uh, that's good. Okay. Time for rapid fire. Number one. Okay. A little last minute curveball that came to me while we were discussing earlier, your thoughts on representative Caston and his hot perk summer movement. So he's a very smart guy. I would, I, I just wouldn't have ever done it. <laughs> i wasn't sure where you were going with that okay all right f to the e to the r to the c <laughs> those words will never come out of <laughs> fair enough but hey. you know what give him credit for raising awareness yeah i was right. gonna say man i, I don't want to i don't want to knock a, uh, i don't yeah. want to remember congress over that i just you know we all have our different ways no publicity is bad publicity right that's what they say okay <laughs> you are a moderate Republican. Do you actually have a party to call home? Yes. And I think some of the thing I don't want to be too partisan in the podcast here, but some of the things that the Democrats have done um, and some of the things they talk about indicate that I'm certainly not a Democrat. So you can you can disagree with some of the things Trump has done policy wise, um, you know, on trade, on some things on immigration. You can not like his style. You can be critical of things he said, um, but still be a Republican. I mean, uh, you know, so yes, certainly. And I think that that will, that will come about um, over time. I mean, we are in a cult of personality driven form of politics these days, um, which, which, which can leave all kinds of people kind of without a political home, but we're a two-party system, right? So you're either one or the other, or you can be an independent, but if you're an independent, you can't vote in primaries, at least in Pennsylvania. Um, so yes, I have a, I'm a Republican, but um, maybe I'm a little bit different Republican than, than some others who are, are very stridently Republican at this moment in time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and as a member of Congress, you weren't afraid to be critical of president Trump, who was your party's president. How, how tough was that? And did, did you ever hesitate to do that because he was in your own well, party? Look, it, it, it was easy for me because I try and be, I don't mean to be, I'm not patting myself on the back, but I just try and be honest. I, I will say this to you. There were times when I didn't, even when I was critical within the, the four walls of my office, because, and I had to try and explain this to so many people who didn't vote for Trump or were repulsed by Trump. And that was this half this country voted for him. And there were people that were fanatically behind him. And when he won, felt that it was the first president in their lifetime that ever spoke for them, right? So, you, you know, in this business, you really have to see all sides. Um, and I'm not even in the business anymore, but you really have to see all sides. And so you have to be careful when you are critical of anybody because, you know, people voted them into office. And so there were times when I wasn't um, as critical as maybe I felt because you have to give everybody, um, you know, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. And for me, particularly in the first six months of his administration, you really have to let any new administration, you know, sort of settle in. And so I tended to only make a comment if, you know, I, I, I was very forcefully um, critical um, with Charlottesville. I felt that he handled that extremely poorly. Um, but then there were some other things where he would, uh, you know, say he'd support some piece of legislation and then he didn't, and, and it would just cause more headaches for us, where I bit my lip early on because I felt that was the right thing to do. But towards the end of my term, um, when I felt things were chaotic, unnecessarily chaotic, I, I was probably a little more outspoken. Is, is this a movement that can, I'm going off, off script again here a little bit, but I mean, is this a movement that has long-term legs? I mean, do you, do you see the sort of Trumpian uh, 
worldview continuing to dominate uh, on a federal or on a well, local level? Yeah, let's talk about that. First off, the sort of uh, bare knuckles, um, you know, Twitter fight mentality. I mean, let's be honest, that's not Trump anymore. I can I can rattle off 10 Democrats in office right now that do that on a daily basis. Right. So there's that. There's also this kind of um, uh, globalist versus um, protectionist type approach, which has historically been much more ho- found a home in the Democratic Party amongst the labor uh, movement than anywhere else. So that has shifted a little bit, um, but Democrats have not given up on a little bit more of a protectionist type bent. Um, oh boy, um, where I th- where I think things have changed a little bit, and, and even this isn't de- Democrats. They haven't found a home in the Democratic Party, but um, you know, the, the sort of anti-monopolist, anti-big business, anti-big tech type stuff has found a home in the Republican Party, and it still has a home in the in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. We we are, I think, moving away from Trumpism as it was once defined into um, a a a type of politics that either looks to government for more and more or says we need to we need to not spend more money and look to government for more things i think inflation people use the term transitory by the way no one really used the word transitory until like the last couple months i never really heard that word much before and why do people use transitory because they're afraid that inflation is here to stay and so that's kind of intellectually elegant way of saying oh it's just transitory and then i heard the other day someone said well we might be experiencing a, a inflation in a in a in a in a permanent state of, in a permanent transitory state. I'm like, well, if it's permanent, <laughs> what the hell does transitory even mean? So you have, so look, I think government spending is out of control. I felt that during even Trump a little bit, but um, once the pandemic hit, I, I, I saw the reason why we had to do it. Um, the other thing is, you know, amongst Republicans, there are some culture wars going on where I am more Republican than Democrat. I will just, I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) But, you know, and I don't know that middle America sees the world through the progressive lens uh, that many Democrats think that they do. And again, I'll just leave it at that. But there are differences between the parties. I think that things are still being fleshed out as to substantively what Trumpism is or isn't and and where the parties, how they sort that out. But right now I think, um, I think the cultural issues are really dominating our politics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Congress has a bad reputation for being partisan and, and ineffective. We're kind of talking about that right now. Is it deserved? Well, it's gotten a hell of a lot worse over the past couple of years. Yeah. So, a lot worse. Since so I, it is deserved. Since I left, it's gotten, I mean, everybody. <laughs> that. And by the way, I'm not, that's not a personal attack on anyone serving in Congress, but it has gotten, it's gotten really, really bad. And um, do you see that at all as a response to what the constitu- what their constituencies are asking them to do? Uh, well, look, in part, I think, um, listen, whether Trump, let's just go back to 2018 to 2020. The president was impeached twice. Right. right? He then got what, 46, 47 percent of the vote, public uh, 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 popular vote. Maybe it was a little higher. Maybe it was 48 so 48% of the country voted for someone who was impeached twice. Impeachment is a highly political process and a highly emotionally charged process. And they did it two times in a year and a half. <laughs> so, so, so you're going to have a lot of phone calls and a lot of very crystallized political opinions in our body politic. And now we have, I mean, look, the images coming out of Afghanistan over the past couple of weeks have been horrific. Um, and, and so I don't think that people are responding to real substantive disagreements in as much as they're dealing with emotionally charged topics. And, and that tends to carry with it um, emotionally charged 
criticisms of Congress and it, and you have a, and by the way, we also had January 6th, right, which was a stain on our country's history, um, where you now have a January 6th commission that um, Republicans didn't support. And then when they went to, to put their members on, Pelosi um, wouldn't put two of the members on. You had, again, and this isn't partisan, but Pelosi changed the rules for motions to recommit, which drowns out the minority voice. Um, and you had, you know, Pelosi kicked two members off of the January 6th committee. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a very toxic atmosphere right now, <laughs> to say the least. Do and everybody see- in Congress would say that. By the way, I'm not saying anything. Everybody in Congress would say that, that too, that's sitting in Congress. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, do you see a path back? I mean, or is this like... Is this uh, is this now permanent transitory? The same as yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, look, I think the pendulum will sl- swing back it, with social media. There's a lot of rewards, political rewards, for members of Congress to be very uh, hot against the opposing party, and particularly right. in a really Democratic or Republican district, which is unfortunate because. You don't, there's no reward for being bipartisan, which by the way is, is one reason why I credit those who supported the bipartisan infrastructure package. I mean, it's something I would uh, vote for if I were in Congress, even if there are things in there I disagree with, just because I think that you need to, you need to work together and you need to drive towards consensus. And, you know, that is not what a lot of voters are looking for right now. They say they want bipartisanship and consensus. But a lot of voters don't. They want their side to win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is this actually gets us back a, a little back on topic. You know, as you mentioned, you weren't afraid, and you're obviously wouldn't be afraid again to cross party lines, do some bipartisan stuff if you think it's the right thing to do. Why is it so hard for some members? Why are they like pathologically against that? Um, why are some members of Congress unable to do that? Well, um, listen. Some of it is the system itself. And that what that means is a Senate majority leader can't will not put a bill on the floor for vote unless it's going to pass, which means they need over half and more likely the case all of their membership to support it. And the most and the most moderate member of the Senate still has to convince the most progressive member of the Senate to vote for it. And so that has a tendency to push things a little bit more left. And the more left that it gets pushed, the less likely that Republicans would be willing to vote for it. And that's not a partisan statement because there were times during um, the, the first two years of the Trump administration where I had bills that I wanted to get on the floor and, and pass that ultimately the most conservative member that had democratic support, that the most conservative members either didn't like, or they wanted to add stuff to it, which made it um, poisonous poison pills to democratic members. Mm -hmm. So my point is the, the legislative process itself still usually has to incorporate the most ideological elements of one's own party before it can incorporate anything from the other party. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. means that the other party, I mean, I could tell you, I mean, there are been number of times where um, during, uh, well, I did it, but some, a lot of Republicans did. Like when Obama, was, when President Obama, last two years of, of his term, when we had to pass stuff, and Boehner was speaker. And by had to, I mean like spending bills that either the government shuts down or it stays open. And so you had to negotiate with Democrats to get some of those votes. And I would vote for that. I would easily vote for that stuff. Um, but some other Republicans didn't. Um, and my point in saying that is <clears throat> depending upon what your coalition, what, what the needed coalition is to pass something, that dictates how you draft the legislation. And if you need some members of the opposing party, you're probably going to lose some of the most ideological members of your own party. If you need the most ideological members of your own party, it's very difficult to get members of um, the other party. And, mm-hmm. and that's just that's just how our politics is. And, you know, the final point I'll make there is we have a tendency in this country 
of looking at disagreements on a continuum and thinking that the disagreement represents totally opposite ends of the continuum when that's not actually true. But the way that we, um, we accentuate that those, uh, those disagreements in a manner that makes me, well, media drives it, but it makes people who follow this stuff, um, feel that, that that they're very far apart. And then we have both political parties that look to accentuate those districts in order to, to for political, as a political organizing tool and increasingly as a fundraising tool. Um, and, and so that leads to less bipartisanship or, or a le- less likelihood that um, folks will cross party lines to vote for something because their own voters, their own partisan voters will think that there's no way you should be supporting that because that, you know, is terrible. Look what all these people said about it when really, you know, it's a matter of degree, you know, of five or 10%, not 80 or 90%. I hope that made sense. <laughs> it, no, it did. It was, it was actually very insightful. I, I found it uh, uh, really interesting. Um, no, that was, that was terrific stuff there, Ryan. Thanks so much. I, I, before we end rapid fire, I'd like to spend just a few minutes talking about Pennsylvania and the politics in Pennsylvania. Um, 2022 is going to be an interesting year in Pennsylvania politics. We have a gubernatorial election. We have a U.S. Senate election. Uh, Congressman, or excuse me, Senator Toomey is retiring. Pennsylvania is a predominantly Democratic state. There's actually 600,000 more Democrats in Pennsylvania than Republicans. Yet Trump won. Um, Trump won Pennsylvania in 2016. We traditionally have had one Democrat and one Republican in the U.S. Senate. So it's kind of there, there's some fascinating political dynamics going on there in Pennsylvania. Um, and energy plays a big part in that. Yes, obviously. So can you talk about, first of all, you know, how you see 22 lining up? in Pennsylvania from a political perspective. And then let's bring it back to energy and the role that energy might play in that 2022 election. So I think what happened in 20, there's been some, um, you know, changing political dynamics. Um, Donald Trump basically picked up a lot of Southwestern and Northeastern Pennsylvania, culturally conservative Democrats. Um, Big time. Huge. Right. I mean, unprecedented numbers coming out of those counties. And and he lost some um, suburban moderate Republicans, primarily in the southeastern part of the state where I live and which really was my congressional district. And um, in 2020, Joe Biden grabbed a few of those culturally conservative Democrats in the Northeast and Southwest and he picked up even more suburban Republicans in the Southeast. And I think partly because some in 2016 decided, well, they know they didn't like Hillary, so they'll give Trump a chance. Um, Going into 2022, I I share that with you as background because going into 2022, I don't think that the Southwest and Northeastern Pennsylvania folks who went for Trump are going to leave um, sort of Trump and Trump Republicans. Um, they might have come out a little bit more in favor of Biden, but I, I, that, may, that may even revert back. And we are here in early September when Afghanistan, to be kind, was absolutely bungled. Um, and hopefully it doesn't get any worse. But I'm not convinced that the Taliban and the propaganda campaign with the amount of weapons we left behind and Americans and our allies that we left behind. I don't think that story, I don't think the, the story has been written on that yet. And I, 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 I hope I'm wrong to be honest with you. So my point is, I think that a lot of suburban Republican, and by the way, we have inflation, we're spending more money. You know, every, it's like every day we wake up and there's more ways, there's more reasons to spend more money on stuff. And some of these cultural issues that progressives keep pushing and pushing and pushing um, are not issues that I think moderate Republicans align with. And so I think 2022 is shaping up to be a very good Republican year. It depends who Republicans nominate. If you, if you nominate someone that, um, is too far right or that is too Trumpy, I think you will have, they will, they will remind uh, moderate voters of that and that could have a, um, a helpful effect for Democrats. Um, so I think it's a very, I think it's very unsettled, but things, I, I would rather be a, the, from an environmental perspective, 
I would rather be Republicans than Democrats going into 2022. Candidate quality is going to matter. In the energy space, um, a, a, the challenge here is for Democrats because a Democrat has to kind of get, has to make peace with the real climate hawks in the party while not turning off, frankly, organized labor. I mean, the big schism in the Democratic Party is between organized labor and, um, uh, and the climate folk and, and because it means jobs. And Pennsylvania is really ground zero for that. You know, maybe you can say the Dakotas, um, but the Dakotas and Texas aren't anywhere near as competitive as Pennsylvania. So you don't, you don't have that dynamic that has implications for who's going to win statewide like you do in Pennsylvania. Um, I don't know that, I don't really know, you know, Reggie, you know, which is Pennsylvania. Um, I don't know if that really has much of an impact in, in a gubernatorial race or not. I tend to think that it won't. Uh, that's my, that's my assessment. Yeah. I actually have a contrary view on there. I think it will have an impact, particularly in the democratic primary Reggie will, because that issue will probably be lingering, you know, into the early part of next year. And I, I think, you know, certainly there, I mean, some of the Republican candidates for governor have already said when they show up on day one, they're going to repeal Reggie if, if Pennsylvania is in it. Um, but I think it's going to be hard for Democrats to run from that question. And, and, and you're exactly right, because, I mean, labor and the environmental groups are on dead opposite sides of that. And that's those are traditional bases for the Democratic Party. So, um, you know, I could see next spring this putting, you know, candidates for governor in Pennsylvania in a, on the Democratic side in, in some pretty tricky s- spots. Could be, although I think Shapiro is their, their only candidate. And I that's think at the state legislative level, there will be very few contested races. And, you know, you, if you want knock on enough doors, you can win a state rep race on that basis alone. But, you know, I probably did overstate it. I think that there are, you built into kind of the 2022 thesis, some nuances that I, you know, admittedly just kind of. Yeah, well, and I think the other interesting takeaway, and this is happening on other issues too, is labor is definitely moving towards the Republican Party um, for, you know, a lot of macro issues and then a lot of micro issues. Like I would, I put Reggie in that group, but I mean. Well, they want to, they want to, but, you know, I'll push back a little bit, you know, but when Biden talks about jobs or he talks about bipartisan infrastructure, I mean, they're writing labor, that's true. Everything that they do. Everything. That's true. And so that's that's the only hesitant. I think that there are some issues that a lot of folks that are in labor unions support Republicans more. But this administration has been very labor friendly. That's true. Fair point. All right. Great stuff. Uh, what should we do? Two minutes, Rory, and wrap it up. Yeah, let's do it, guys. All right. We are. We're, I'm, I'm sure we're we're, we're pretty uh, close on time. So. Uh, I will give you guys a quick two minutes. Uh, you got two minutes to um, give any unsolicited advice that you, to people whom you think need it. You get two minutes to level one-on-one with anyone anywhere on anything you think he or she needs to hear. Ryan, who are you going with this month and what are you saying? Ben Simmons needs to get the hell out of Philadelphia. Ah, there you go. Wow. <laughs> That's wow. good advice. <laughs> who's come, who, 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 takes, who fills his shoes? Honestly, I'd trade him for a bunch of draft picks. It, it almost really? Matter. He's, he's, he, he, he is cancerous in the locker room to the rest of the team. And, and the way we've handled this, um, by not trading him immediately after the playoffs, his, his trade value went down in the in the playoffs i mean it and the longer we wait the less we're going to get for him i don't think we're going to get much for him i really don't but the way he's handled this and the weakness that he has means i don't think we can win a championship with him i mean we were the best team during the regular season and we belly flopped in the playoffs and there's no way to change how we belly flopped so long as he's on the roster Wow, that might be your most explosive opinion of the podcast. Jeez. I try and be modulated. <laughs> and, and, and as a guy who was at two of those four losses to the Hawks, I, I, it was brutal. It was so hard to watch, and yeah, it's so frustrating because he is such a talented player. But it's I, I agree I agree with Ryan here. It, it's it's time to move on. Man, man, yeah, guys. Okay, uh, Glenn. 
You know, Rory, I mean, I, I think we're tight on time here. So I'm just going to forego my advice here and, and, and thank Congressman Costello for joining us. What a great conversation. I mean, we covered so much ground today. Honestly, I think we could have gone. This could have been the GT power three hours um, if we uh, if, if we kept going here because there's just so much to cover. So uh, thanks so much for joining us, Ryan. This was this was awesome. Well, look, it was kind of you to invite me. Thank you. If anybody wants to reach out, feel free to email me, Ryan at Ryan Costello. Thanks a lot. Perfect. Perfect. Well, guys, uh, another fine hour in the bag. Thank you for being here, Ryan. Um, Thanks to the audience for listening. And as always, until next time, be excellent to each other. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.